0: This is episode 213 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like William Shakespeare, our show depends on support by our patrons. Listeners just like you can sign up to support our shows and get bonus episodes along with detailed show notes for our episodes, including visual content we can't share here on the audio, by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. If you love learning Shakespeare history the hands-on way, with crafts, recipes, and games, then consider becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life. Members get access to our collection of activity kits and history resource library that includes things like settings maps, character diagrams, lesson plans, worksheets, and an entire video streaming library for things like documentaries and three-minute animated plays that let you take the history you learn about here on our show right into your home or classroom. Learn more and sign up today at CassidyCash.com members
1: what matters i think why his name appears is really for two reasons the first is that medicine is always funny (laughs) Um, and comedians playwrights had long been introducing comic doctors they're either murderers or they're jokes and particularly if they are foreign doctors. So that's why the doctor in The Merry Wives of Windsor is a Frenchman.
2: And now, here's Cassidy.
0: John Keyes was a prominent medical professional in the 16th century, a staunch adherent to the teachings of Galen, who himself was the ultimate authority on medical knowledge for close to 15 centuries. John Keyes owned a copy of Galen's text, and that original copy survives at Eton College, Berkshire, with Keyes' notes and annotation there for review. Galen's work was essentially the Grey's anatomy of its time, and Key's interest in Galen's work was not merely being a fan, but doing his due diligence in medical study. However, despite the evidence to suggest he was a pillar of medical knowledge in the 16th century, training major medical figures of the period, John Keyes is accused, even in his own time, of being too much of a traditionalist, unable to change and grow with the rapidly evolving mindset of his time period, and was even held responsible for annoying Queen Elizabeth at a medical forum that took place at the court the year Shakespeare was born. As a result, about 30 years after his death in 1573, William Shakespeare is able to satirize his namesake through the comedic French doctor of Dr. Keyes in Merry Wives of Windsor. Here today to share with us the life and accomplishments of the real Dr. Keyes, along with what happened between his death and the time Shakespeare's applying his name for comedic purposes in the play, is our guest Vivian Nutton. Vivian Nutton taught classics at Cambridge before moving in 1977 to University College London, where he became professor of the history of medicine for over 30 years. He has held visiting professorships in the USA, Canada, Australia, and Russia, and is a member of learned academies in Britain, Germany, France, and Italy. He has ranged widely over the whole history of medicine, but particularly over the classical tradition in medicine from the Greeks to the 17th century. His recent books include Ancient Medicine, of which a third edition is scheduled for 2023, Galen, A Thinking Doctor in Imperial Rome that came out in 2020, an annotated translation of John Key's autobiography in 2018, and just published this year is a book called Renaissance Medicine, A Short History of European Medicine in the 16th Century. We'll link to these books as well as other resources on today's topic in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Vivian. Welcome to the show. Hello.
1: Nice to be with you.
0: Thank you. Glad to have you. Mary Wives of Windsor was written between 1597 and 1601, almost 30 years after John Keyes died. Keeping in mind, Elizabeth I was still reigning at the time this play was first performed, and she would have remembered John Keyes personally. Vivian, what was John Keyes' reputation when Shakespeare included his name in this play, and why was the memory of Keyes able to be used for comedy?
1: Well, by the time... The play was written. Keys, the reputation of Keys had sunk, I think, in many, in many places. When he was alive, he had a great reputation. He was a European-wide scholar with friends in Germany, Italy, France, and so on. But by the time he died, he had seemed to be a man of the past, Now, there's there's no reason to believe that Shakespeare knew him or even that John Hall, his medical son-in-law, knew him. But there were people around in London who certainly knew him and who were fellow historians along with Keyes. But what matters, I think, why his name appears is really for two reasons. The first is that medicine is always funny. (laughs) Um, And comedians, playwrights had long been introducing comic doctors. They're either murderers or they're jokes, and particularly if they are foreign doctors. So that's why the doctor in The Merry Wives of Windsor is a Frenchman and who speaks in this Strange lingo. Uh, But of course, Keyes was an Englishman and proud of it, and he wrote and spoke very well. But between the 1570s and Shakespeare, he had become known as, I think, what we could still today call a character that stories grew up. About him, and what people came to know about him was not necessarily truth. So that's why, in a sense, we don't have the historic keys in the Mary Wives of Windsor.
0: Speaking of the historic keys, you mentioned that when he was alive, he did have this great reputation, and John Keys, the doctor, the real doctor, was a prominent man in the medical community in England. He was even head of London College of Medicine during his lifetime. How did John Keyes come to be appointed to that position? Was he appointed by Queen Elizabeth?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. He was appointed by his fellow doctors. And doctors don't like being told what to do by politicians or even queens, What happened with John Keyes is a wonderful example of how things can change in one's own lifetime. Because he was in his youth and in his probably his early up to his 30s and 40s in the forefront of European medicine. But things moved on. And that is one reason why he becomes seen as a character, and he was. He's, he's an eccentric in one's, in some senses. He keeps animals and birds in his house. And there's a lovely little note in one of his books in which he says that he kept a pet puffin. Now, naturalists know that puffins are not easy to keep on land, and they don't like being caged. And he records that when he tried to feed the bird, it used to nip his finger. But he then adds, not in a malicious way, which I think tells you a lot about his relationship with animals. Sounds like yeah. he liked them. Oh, yes. He, he wrote a wonderful book on English dogs. And he was one of the first English naturalists to go and report and have drawings made of animals, fishes, birds that he had found around the country. But he must also have been a very unusual figure. He had a very high, squeaky voice. And when Queen Elizabeth in 1564 came to Cambridge to conduct uh, an official visit, he was chosen to speak. And uh, we're told he spoke in such a way that the Queen couldn't hear him and she got very annoyed and told him to speak up. But as he grew older, he became, if you like, out of touch with anything. He always looked back to what he calls Merry England and the time of, of good King Henry when men were men and children were well brought up. And in his treatise on the sweat, he explains why unusually it's teenagers and young men who fall ill rather than the elderly. We don't know what the sweat was. It may have been a form of influenza. But he says it's all to do with the way they're brought up. The young today aren't tough enough. They've been brought up sitting by the fire, wearing their furs and eating hot buttered toast. And everything has changed for the worst. And by the time he dies, he is a figure of fun, a relic of a past age. And his religious beliefs are out of touch with those of, Cambridge, certainly, and his rooms are ransacked by a committee from from the university. So he does become, at the end of his life, this sort of character who is out of touch with modern life. And that, I think, is why you get all these stories about him.
0: So was John Keyes a practicing physician during his lifetime? Did he treat patients?
1: Oh, yes, yes. His main work and what he, how he made his money was by treating the wealthy men in the city. You might describe him as a, today as a wealthy physician from Los Angeles and New York who, who treated the wealthiest people in the community. And that's where he makes his money. He studied in Padua. He comes back to England. And he then begins a very, very successful practice. Unfortunately, we don't have any names of patients. We just know that he made an awful lot of money. And it seems to me he's working and living in the city of London slap next to the wealthiest people in the country. And he's never slow to boast his own merits. When he comes to Cambridge, he tells his college, I'm going to be spending most of my time in London. And when he's there, uh, admittedly, he seems to be continuing to treat patients until his death.
0: At the University of Cambridge, there's a college named after Dr. Keyes called Gonville and Keyes College. Colloquially, it's known simply as Keyes. They are in possession of a caduceus or silver staff bearing the serpents and cross we associate with medicine today that was given to them by John Keyes. Vivian, what's the story of Keyes giving this symbol to the college? Did Keyes make this staff? And on what occasion did he present it to the college?
1: Well, he has an interesting relationship with the college. He comes up to the college in 1529, and he is possibly intending to become a clergyman, to study theology. And his earliest things he tells us about his student days and his early work suggests this was somebody who was going to be a clergyman. At some point, he decides to go into medicine. He becomes a fellow of the college, and therefore that means he's given a certain stipend, which allows him to go off to Italy and to study medicine at Padua, which is the greatest medical school of the time. So he's taught in Padua, he comes back. But that it is not at all clear if he ever came back then to his own college. But he makes his money and then he decides that he will have his own college. And he begins negotiating, firstly with some people in the college and then with Queen Mary Tudor and her husband. King Philip of Spain, and he gets a new charter for the college in 1557. He then starts the giving the college large amounts of land, and in 1558, he pays a visit to the college, in which he formally hands over some deeds of land. And has a great procession to the college chapel, in which he is preceded by the staff, the caduceus, the symbol of medicine, and a silver plate, they have a formal service. He goes back, he gives it to the college, and he's rather pleased with the service, though he, rego- he complains that it really was nobody knew him. Nobody remembered him. He wasn't entirely welcomed. And um, he goes off to London. But the next year, the college master dies. The college is in financial straits. The college is falling apart. And what do you look for? A nice big benefactor. And so he comes back. He comes back as master and sets about restoring, rebuilding, reorganizing the college to fit his view of what a college should be. And that's the story behind the gift of the Caduceus. He said that the occasion wasn't as good as he'd perhaps hoped because nobody remembered it. Well, I don't believe that but certainly that he's then uh, who asked to become master and then effectively takes over until his death.
0: John Keyes was the teacher of several men who would later become doctors in their own right. Are there notable physicians from this period that we know
1: learned from John Keyes? Strangely, no. We know of two pupils, or two people, we know of the names of two people who attended his lectures, one of them in Padua and one in London. The man in Padua, both of them are aristocrats. They're not medics. And curiously, the man who attends for almost 20 years his lectures in London was an MP for Warwickshire. So there may be a Shakespeare connection there. But what he did was he was really two things. The first was that he intended his college to be a medical college. Now, in England and even more in Scotland, not the numbers of medical students were extreme, was extremely small. There was possibly one doctor of medicine in Cambridge, perhaps every three or four years. Oxford had even fewer, and although St John 's College, Cambridge, had been given a lectureship in physic in medicine, it doesn't seem to have been acted been put into action immediately, and Keyes was intent on setting up a medical college. His statutes specify medicine as the things one of the things that people should study. And he got friends like Archbishop Parker to subscribe money for scholarships. So this is absolutely unusual. He also arranges for something that, again, was absolutely unusual in England and in many other places on the continent, which was that his college should have by royal permission, two corpses every year that they could use to dissect. In other words, he's demanding that you see a dissection in college at a time when this was not so in the university. And one can also suspect that he is behind moves to introduce formal anatomies into the university. But he wanted his college to be a medical mecca, and it was. And the most famous student there was William Harvey, who saw dissections in in college and then, like Keyes, went off to Padua. And there is a long tradition of medical teaching in Keyes. That is unsurpassed in any other college in the United Kingdom, almost until the 20th century. And it still is famous as a medical college. So that's the first aspect of his teaching. We don't know any of the people who heard him talk, but we know that he made sure that his college taught medicine and taught anatomy. And the second is his relationship with the barber surgeons. Henry VIII had founded, allowed the foundation of the College of Physicians. And in in 1540, he began supporting the move to have a College of Surgeons in London. And this was agreed. So, this is Henry VIII sets up the two colleges in London one of physicians, one of surgeons. And John Keyes, probably almost as soon as he comes back from Padua in 1543 or four, is appointed to teach anatomy to surgeons. And he teaches that for over 20 years. And so, what he is doing is bringing into England the new, if you like, ideas about the importance of anatomy and ensuring that surgeons have the opportunity to learn, if you like, modern anatomy with dissections in London. So although we don't know the name of anybody who attended, or for certain, though we know something about members of the, the college, we, we can say he was responsible for the teaching of anatomy as a central feature. And that was something that wasn't true in many other parts of Europe.
0: Some assumptions about the 16th century tend to group medical practice in general, and particularly the more dramatic treatments we know to be ineffective today, like bloodletting or the use of leeches, into a category of, of irrelevant or worse, they are presumed to be largely ignorant. And I want to comment on that by asking you to share what specific practices or discoveries that we can see in the work of John Keyes that represent advancement in medical knowledge that were correct or that modern medical professionals still rely on to do what they do today?
1: That's a very difficult question. All one can say was that he had many patients who thought he was a good doctor. But he we haven't got things like case notes, And we have only got his work on the English sweating sickness, in which he tells us how you should behave. What he does do is to bring back from Italy into England and into into Cambridge and London the emphasis on medical method. That is to say, that one should think about medicine. One should know about how the body works. And one should argue and know these things. He had a huge library, and he offers a whole range of, at times, impossible ideas. But also, he's demanding that you work from observation and then use all your, what we might call, traditional learning as a doctor. He is absolutely fascinated by Galen, and he is uh, the person who, if you like, transmits to England the new Galen. Galen had been a Greek physician, famous throughout the Middle Ages, but from 1490 onwards, people discovered that Galen's ideas had been misunderstood. And you had to go back now to Greek, the Greek words that were becoming available in Greek. And that was also Keys's passion, that he read Galen in Greek, He edited Galen, he translated Galen, he wrote about Galen. And classicists today are still dependent on him for some notes of manuscripts, which are now lost. So classicists like him. But this was fine in the 1530s. But by the 1560s, the weakness of always going back to antiquity was becoming acknowledged. And Keyes does seem to me to be always looking backwards. He doesn't like the new chemical remedies that are coming in. He doesn't like if you will, what he calls quackery and old wives' tales. And he believes that a doctor should be a learned man with great knowledge. And I think his patients agreed, because that's what the London College of Physicians insisted upon, learning.
0: Well, I know we would love to explore his life and his history and the things that he brought new to England just before and then therefore influencing Shakespeare's lifetime. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn
1: more about John Keyes? Well, the best, the best biography of John Keyes is written by Christopher Brooke in his History of Gomble and Keyes College. That's a very nice chapter. Just a few years ago, I produced an English translation of John Key's what I call autobiography. It's a book he wrote called On My Own Books, in which he tells you a great deal about his life. If you want to read about Elizabethan medicine in the time of Shakespeare, there's a book by Deborah Harkness at Yale called The Jewel House which is, which talks about science, including medicine, in Elizabethan England. But by far the best way of getting an idea about what it was like, and I always recommended this to my students, was to read a surgeon called William Clowes, that's C-L-O-W-E-S. His works are available on the net, and who writes the most wonderful Elizabethan English, all about his opponent's life in in Elizabethan London. And if you want to find out what it was actually like to be a doctor or a surgeon in London, you read William Clowes. And there's in 1948, there was a selection of his writings uh, edited by a man called Noel Pointer, which is also available on the web. And read that. It's short and you have a wonderful vision of what English medicine and English surgery was like.
0: Those are excellent resources. Thank you so much for suggesting them. We will link to all of these resources directly in the show notes for today's episode, so make sure you hang on for the link for where to find those. Now, Vivian, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those.
1: I thought about this a lot. I used to tow my pupils, a good book is one you can always come back to and find something new and interesting. And the book I would want is by a Frenchman called Fernand Brodel, and it's called the Mediterranean, in English, The Mediterranean World in the Time of Philip II. It was a French thesis originally written when the man was, when Brodel was in jail in 1943, and uh, it was then published in France, translated into English, and is a wonderful survey of the Mediterranean world from what it means to have mountains, rivers, woods. What what are people trading? What are they doing? What evidence do we have how people lived? And finally, at the end of two volumes, there's just a very short section on Philip II, but it's the first big book that talks about, if you like, ecology and history. So that's the book I would have, I've got a lot to read in it.
0: That sounds like a fascinating choice. I think you'd be well set up on your desert island with that selection. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about?
1: Well, I'm finishing a third edition of my book called Ancient Medicine. After that, I don't know. I've got a choice of doing a little book on Vesalius, the great anatomist and the Fabrica, or of re-editing into English a work by Galen called On My Own Opinions. And I'll do them both, possibly, and that, there are a few other things I've got to do. I want to write a paper on the development of, for instance, the scientific study of folk medicine, which doesn't begin, as most people think, in the USA, but it begins in late nineteenth-century Russia, which uh, has a wonderful story and um, linked to Russian expansion in Siberia and in. Kazakhstan and so on so I've, uh, I've got plans for the future
0: that all sounds fascinating we'll look forward to seeing your new projects when they come out thank you so much Vivian Nutton, for being here today and walking us through the history of John Keys. this really helps us understand the play Merry Wives of Windsor so much better and I appreciate you having this conversation with us this was fun thank you for being here thank you Be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare. Inside our show notes for today, we have packed all the links to the resources that we talked about during our episode with Vivian. You can see links to his work as well as all of the other bonus resources that he mentioned, including the notes from the 16th century surgeon that shares with you what it was like to actually be in medicine during Shakespeare's lifetime. So make sure you visit the show notes to find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 213. That's CassidyCash.com slash Two, one, three. Our show is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. If you enjoy the history we bring to you here each week, then please consider supporting our show. Patrons get access to detailed show notes and bonus episodes. Learn more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. If you enjoy connecting with a community of like-minded Shakespeareans who think quill pins and doublets and exploring the speeches of Shakespeare's plays are just as much fun as you do, then consider becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life. Our membership community is where we have created digital history activity kits that let you take crafts, games, and recipes from the life of William Shakespeare and try them out for yourself at home with video tutorials, step-by-step instruction guides, and printable worksheets that let you take the activity to the kitchen table with your family or into the classroom with your students so that you can learn history the hands-on way. If this sounds like fun to you, then explore all of the benefits of being a member at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learned something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life.